Today, we are welcomed by a very special guest, the author of a 2021 hit, Damascus Station. And I just finished it, and it's already the best book that I have read this year. I'm sorry it took me this long, but thanks for joining us, David McCloskey. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. I mean it. This book, I don't know why it took me this long, but it swept me off my feet. I was so invested with these characters and this plot and this setting, the way you transported me to Syria. So just talk to me. How did you come to write this book after having a career in the CIA? Did you know writing a story about your experience was something you always wanted to do? I mean, honestly, no. Uh, um, I, you know, I, I left the agency in 2014. I, I had worked on Syria for most of my time there. And so, you know, that was obviously top of mind for me. Like it was coming on the, I mean, in the middle of, but for me on the heel of, of this experience, working on a really pretty, you know, extremely violent, extremely upsetting civil war that had ripped the whole country apart. And for me, this book was really, it, it at least started, I think, as an attempt to kind of process a lot of that. I had, I had lived in Damascus. I had worked on it for, you know, at that point, seven years. And I, I just felt very emotionally tied to the place. And so the very first drafts of what became this book, you know, were, were really almost like a, almost like journal entries, I think, to some degree, like processing things, writing down stories, you know, kind of uh, I, some of which were true, some of which were kind of fictional, like just kind of writing short stories about it. And, um, you know, I, I ended up putting that aside and taking another job, leaving intelligence, leaving DC. And I, I had really enjoyed the experience of that that writing and, and found that I was really in the flow while I was doing it, you know, eight or nine hours would just pass by like that. And I kind of thought, well, that's, that's interesting. You know, there's, there's something about that, but I had no idea what would come of it. And, and I honestly, you know, once I took another job and kind of got into a new life, I thought, well, it's just going to be one of those things that lives on my computer. It's a word document I've got that's yeah. this fun, fun processing of an experience that'll never go anywhere. But, you know, when I actually had the opportunity to sit back down with it five years later, it became a much more focused exercise, I think, aided by the benefit of it being five years later and there being a bit less emotion around it. It felt a bit less raw to say, okay, can I get the CIA right? Can I, can I tell a true fictional story, right, about the CIA and what it is and what it does and what it feels like to work there? And can I tell a real story about Syria? And to me, those two kind of things were, they, they were the guiding light of the book and taking the manuscript from 2014, which was objectively terrible and no one would want to read, you know, and turning that into something that was both uh, satisfying to me and exciting to me to write. And then also something that like, you know, you would want to read that actually had a plot and interesting characters, right. you know, and, and moved you toward, some kind of conclusion as opposed to just uh, spinning, you know, in the ether. So the book really came out of that, that journey and that, and that transformation. And, 
and, and yeah, it was, it was very much, you know, fueled by my, my desire to, to tell those stories, you know, accurately and to, and to bring people into those, into those worlds. That realism and striking the balance between what's one going to be allowed to be published and two, right. a little close to home, but also blending that with it being a fictional story that you ultimately are creating. And it is imaginative at the same time. from an outsider's perspective with no experience anywhere in the realm of intelligence in your world, I was, I, it seemed so real. Like, how did you want to translate your experience in the field, both at Langley, get that in the book, but balance that with, you're still telling a story that's fake, but you would never know. It almost reads as if it could be a history of the Syrian. conflict. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, you know, I, I, as I wrote, you know, I, I realized that a lot of a lot of things that that were were true or at least close enough to true, either from a CIA culture standpoint or from a tradecraft standpoint or from a serious standpoint, like it just struck me that they were more interesting than things that I would make up, and. and you know, you, there there are points in the narrative where you do have to bend that reality to make the story work, to make the plot work. You know, like it can't just be a trade tradecraft manual. It can't just be a history of the war. It can't just be a nonfiction book about the CIA, right? It's not any of those things. But I, I wanted it to feel close enough to those things, and I felt like I could bring in a lot of real rich detail about you know, the CIA, like the really cool tradecraft, but also just, you know, the, the mind numbing bureaucracy and the procedure and the, and the sort of, you know, the procedural aspect of it. And I could bring in the reality of the Syrian war and like all of that would, would be more interesting than anything I could make up if I, if I knew kind of where to break the rules, which sounds a little bit weird, but it was, I I knew that I wanted to create a kind of baseline of, verisimilitude and authenticity and then at select points break it mm-hmm. so that the story would work but i i hoped that as the reader you would kind of you'd feel so drawn into the world that you wouldn't you know you, you probably you wouldn't even care or maybe you wouldn't even notice when i stepped from the world of you know real tradecraft to something that's made up or from the real syria to something that's a little bit bent you know, I, I was hoping that the foundation would be laid so that you'd say, okay, I'm just going, I'm going along with this, or maybe I don't even know that I've transitioned to something that's made up, you know? Oh, you 100% nailed that. I was salivating over some of these details on the surveillance detection routes, which I definitely <laughs> want to talk about. You really go into detail on those, and maybe we should save some of it for our spoiler section, in case some listeners sure. don't know. Yeah. The second half of this podcast. We will give you a spoiler warning. Uh, David is kind enough to stay on with us and go into the details of the plot. So if you read the book and finished it, we'll talk about the characters, some of the really awesome action sequences, some of that tradecraft and espionage. So just in a general sense, you spend a lot of time on the page with these surveillance detection routes. And I've read a few things about, you know, training down in, in Williamsburg and whatnot. And I read the book, I believe, I believe it was TJ Waters class 11 and his account of yeah. his time training at the farm as one of the first post 
9-11 uh, recruit classes. Yeah. And he also talks a whole lot about the training and the surveillance route. So when did or why did you decide to make that a focal point of the story and what Sam and the other main characters do? Is that because it is so central to an operative's craft? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, um, to take one step back from that question before answering it, I thought, sure. you know, as I went into the book, you know, like I said, that the kind of overall theme was, hey, like, can I get the CIA right or at least close enough to write, you know? And and part of that is getting the the tradecraft kind of right, or at least, you know, enough so that it's it's um it feels real and, and it's obviously not betraying anything that's that's, you know, overly sensitive. And I've, you know, I've I've been pretty much a lifetime or lifelong reader of spy fiction. And and I've kind of been struck that a lot of it, particularly the American varietal, is really more about people who work in sort of special operations and maybe have a CIA tag. and, And a lot of that stuff, you know, it's really fun and I read almost all of it, but it really bears little resemblance to... The life of an actual CIA case officer, as I, you know, had spent time with CIA case officers, as I, you know, was actually there myself as an analyst. Like you kind of realize that this is a very different craft. I mean, they're doing something that's very different from what you read about in a Vince Flynn novel or in a Brad Thor novel or in a Jack Carr novel. And those guys, God bless them, those are wonderful. I read every single one of those books. They're not trying to do that stuff, but it, it's not what a normal CIA case officer does, right? right. And, you know, I, I've kind of, I've just been struck that I think what an actual CIA case officer does is, is pretty damn interesting. And so when I thought about that toolkit and like what they're doing day to day, especially when you think about Damascus 10 years ago, this denied environment, you know, where you have this, you know, antagonistic government hostile relationship, blanket of surveillance, like what a case officer who is in, like a case officer stationed to Damascus, like that's what they're going to be doing and thinking about all the time is, is how do I create space so that I can conduct the operational act? I can meet with the asset, I can do the brush pass, whatever it might be. And so that's why I spent so much time on it because, you know, Sam Joseph, the, the, one of the protagonists of this book is a CIA case officer who's in Damascus, you know, in 2011, 2012, around there. And, and that is what his life would be. And so I spent a lot of time on it because like, as he's practicing his trade, that's what he's going to be doing as, you know, sort of uh weird as it might be i mean he's going to be thinking about the street he's going to be feeling the place he's going to be thinking about his physical environment in a way that like none of us actually think about our physical environment day to day um because he's going to be thinking about where can i and how can i you know meet with an asset you know do this foot placement drop this cash whatever it might be like that's how he's going to think about the world and so i wanted to kind of bring the reader into that yeah, that's really good. And since you mentioned it, some of these authors, we obviously are the thriller podcast, very heavy on the authors you just named. We have a hundred plus episodes about the Mitch Rapp series. We read every book. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Book. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic, right? We love them. Like, Huge fans. Yeah. 
but you're right in saying that sometimes that that genre pigeonholes itself leaves you a little short of what are other roles outside of the paramilitary or the special operations group people, you know, the former SEALs and, and Rangers that they bring in. There's so much more that's actually more important on the intelligence side of things. So we almost thirst for a book like yours, which has meat, which has the real world connections where some of the Flynn and Thor books take us out of reality a little too much. Sometimes they get a lot of the geopolitics, I think, right. And the, the big picture. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but, for sure. But Sam running an agent in Damascus, you know, around 2010, that gives us a whole nother type of hero. And, and Sam doesn't just kick ass and take names. He is much more deliberate and analytical and reserved and careful. And it's more a psychological thriller in some sense about yeah. the relationships between people. Would you say it's not quite just a thriller? It's not just an espionage book. It's not just an action drama. It's almost crossing genres and, and really touching on a lot of different varieties. You know, look, I, I, I wanted it to feel, I, I wanted there to be action at points that sort of moved the narrative forward. And, and, you know, I wanted, I wanted fans of, you know, all of the authors you just mentioned to, to read it and to feel like this is something that they could, you know, relate to in some way and kind of like, you know, they would enjoy. Right. Um, and I, and I think, you know, I, I wanted I wanted people who had read Flynn books and Thor books and, and the Jack Carr books to be able to pick this up and say, hey, this is really cool. This is different. It's cool. I like it. I want to read it, too. But I, but it is, I think, by virtue of, you know, the, t the type of character that Sam is and just frankly, the, the type of book that I wanted to write, like it, it is probably a little bit more. Yeah, it's, it's less it is less driven by the action. Right. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way at all. Right. It's just it's it's less driven by the action and it's more driven by the kind of intrigue of the espionage and the relationships between the between the characters at times. I, I think that 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 is the kind of book that I, you know, I actually I, I spoke with Jack Carr when I was writing this book, he, you know, we're we're we've been in touch and I was struck by something he said. And, you know, we're just having a conversation about writing and, and he was like, look, I, you know, I wrote a book for my nightstand. Like this is a book that I, I wrote a book that I wanted on my nightstand. And I think that's wonderful advice. Like I, I wrote a book that this is the kind of book that I would want to read, you know? Uh, and, right. and so I, I wrote a book that I would want on my nightstand. Simple as that. Yeah. And all that, it just made me think your book is much closer to a Lake Hooray and Sam is almost a modern <laughs> The way Flynn and Thor are like modern day Clancy's or more updated Clancy's in a post like 9-11 and, you know, that those kind of plot lines. I feel like you're taking his Cold War kind of storylines with George Smiley and, and the George Smiley character. And yours is almost bringing that to a modern era and putting a, a spin on it in the, the 2010s. Would you say you're you did you lean on Lake Hooray? Are you a fan? Because it kind of got vibes of the spy who came in from the cold with, uh, with some of the things you did. <laughs> well, I, I would never want to compare myself to him because I think he, uh, he sort of transcends the genre and that he is, he is a world-class novelist who just happened to write about spies in some ways. Right. Like, um, but, but, you know, I've read, I think everything that he's written 
and, and have been reading it for, you know, the past, you know, 17, 18 years. I mean, really since I started to get into the genre. So, you know, I think he, he is undoubtedly some kind of influence, although I couldn't exactly tell you how. I, I, I do think I appreciate the kind of, this is maybe a little bit simplistic, but kind of the British school of espionage fiction, which tends to be a little bit more slow burn. Like, you know, if, if I think about him, you know, one of my, probably my favorite Le Carre novel is Little Drummer Girl, okay. which I think does a, a wonderful job of kind of showing the the buildup of a pretty complicated, you know, human operation. And then at the same time deals really in this very intricate, multi-layered way with the like manipulative, intimate relationship between a case officer and their asset. I, I like that book a lot. And and I think that, you know, that book influenced me and in how I thought about the Sam and Miriam relationship in Damascus Station and the idea that like you could have a book that's really interesting, that's not driven by exclusively by explosives and and shooting and things like yeah. that, but that it that there is a lot of this kind of intrigue, some of which is psycho psychological, some of which is just driven by the trade craft, which is not violent all the time, uh, or most of the time, and that that could propel a plot. That to me was kind of an eye opening realization, I think, as I kind of went back to some of uh, Le Carre's stuff in the, over the past three or four years and studied it a little bit more analytically. Because, you know, when I'd read it as a teenager, it was like, well, this is interesting, but I wasn't thinking about how he put it together or what moved the story forward. You're just kind of appreciating it. Now it's kind of like, okay, well, this guy's got whole chapters where, quote unquote, nothing happens. But, you know, <laughs> like, the, like there's a lot of character development or there's, there's intrigue building. Yeah, and, and and that's interesting, right? So... I think I think that that school of uh, that school of espionage fiction to me is is probably like closer to my you know the the, the voice or kind of the, the world that I want to create. A hundred percent, you could see those influences on the page. It all comes through, and it's just massively, massively done. So, thank you. You mentioned something I'm burning to ask you, so I am going to drop a spoiler warning here. Uh, we're going to yep. get into some of the nitty gritty and the actual characters in the book and the plot of what happens. So pause right now. If you haven't read it, pick up Damascus Station. Fantastic book. Like I said, best that I've read so far in 2022. Uh, there's a lot to come, but I definitely think it'll hold up. Really loved it. So with a spoiler warning, I want to ask. Sam and Mariam, I'm shipping it. I uh, they <laughs> the way they fell for each other. And I always wondered what is the personal relationship between a case officer and an agent? Does it ever get too <laughs> physical, too emotional, or is it pure professionalism? Like, why did you want them to fall in love so deeply for each other, knowing it's kind of taboo? Yeah. Well, it's it's more than kind of taboo. It's the kind of thing that gets you fired. And uh, <laughs> like the the it doesn't, I mean, the reality of it is is that there are examples of it happening. But almost every single case officer asset relationship is marked by 
professionalism and not by the kind of romantic draw that you know I discuss in Dama a kind of treat in Damascus Station. So I think the the caveat here is that this is something that um, you know I, I sort of dove into in the world of fiction. It, it's not without some kind of precedent, but at the same time, like no one reading this book should think that this is some kind of common occurrence, although it's obviously a, a common or somewhat common trope, I think, in espionage fiction to kind of deal with this. Now, the, the reason why I was so drawn to it or, and really why I became more drawn to it is I wrote the book because initially their relationship was something that wasn't as sort of full-throated as it became uh, right. in, in the course of the novel. Like, I actually found that the characters themselves had an energy that drew them together and that created its own like its own sort of spark and drove the plot. But I, I was drawn to it intellectually because, you know, if you if you sort of take the case officer asset relationship and you strip the romantic stuff out um, for a second, you put that to the side, you have this really interesting relationship, right? You have a an intimate relationship one where there's really mutual vulnerability. You're talking about being in a country like Syria. Miriam could tell the Syrians that Sam is CIA and, you know, he could get kicked out of Syria or much worse. He knows her darkest secret, right? Like you're, you're sort of dealing in this world of two people who have a quote unquote professional relationship, but it's deeply intimate, really. You have this weird manipulation that's existing somewhat unsaid, you know, over the top of it, where the case officer is manipulating this person to get information. And then I thought, look, if you inject romantic interest into this, you, like as, as a novelist, I mean, you have a lot of potential energy there. A lot of different ways you can go, a lot of things that can move plot forward, that can put your characters in interesting situations. And Honestly, I didn't have the whole thing kind of scoped out in my head when I started. Mm. But as I worked with that, I realized that there was a lot there. And it was just like, okay, well, let's, let's, fig let's figure out where this is going to go. Because, because it, it's fun and, and there's a lot of different, you know, you can, you can put people in really tense personal situations sexual situations, professional situations. And there's not a lot of, like, you know, in your writing, like sometimes things can be kind of wooden and stale and it's like, hey, this doesn't really work. Like this is an example of like, wow, there's a lot of heat here. There's a lot of energy here. I'm just going to drive forward. So that's why I was really drawn to this, to this setup. And that happens when Mariam almost sells out Sam, but because they took Razan, yeah. you know, her, her cousin she loves dearly, and in her mind, she feels so bad about it, but she was also thinking what she could safely give up to the yeah. Syrians and what she should withhold. And so she doesn't give them everything, but she gives yeah. them enough to interest them. But she's really trying to protect Sam and her relationship the whole time. Like she gives them the device, but doesn't show them how yeah. to swipe on it, you know, and different things. Let me ask you about that. You bring in some really neat details, whether it's the device with this blast message system that's undetectable where you <laughs> swipe in one pattern to do it secretly and you, you put in your regular passcode to access all the normal stuff. Is, is that that tech you're kind of inventing or is that something that uh, <laughs> that's out there? Uh, 
let me put it this way: it, there's a foundation. There's a foundation of realism there, but a lot of the details are made up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're made up by virtue of just it's not like I can't. It would be, it would be completely irresponsible of me to actually like describe how an actual device you know that exists today works. So it's it. There's a foundation of realism, but then embellishment you know, right. on, on top of it, as, as unsatisfying as that might be to say. <laughs> and we also had in that vein, the, the necklace camera, which was uh, yeah. real interesting and the, the briefcase and the yeah. briefcase made me think of something out of the Americans. I don't know if you're a fan, so I'd love to hear your take. Have oh, you I'm seen a huge show? fan. I love, okay, yeah, great. I love, I love the Americans. Yeah. I feel like, it. and I'd love to hear from you. Does that show get it right? I feel like it does. Cause there's a similar briefcase thing where they put in a false bottom and they're, you know, yeah. they got a mic in it. Do you like that show? Is is that real? I no, I, I love it. I love it. And I mean, you know, it's um obviously that show is also I, I, I actually think what Joe Weisberg was doing was something a little bit similar to my philosophy, which is like there's enough that's real there. Right. Uh that that gives you this foundation of like, oh, okay, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about. The street trade craft in that show is is pretty good. Oh, you know, yeah. a lot of the gad- the gadgetry is pretty good and based off of actual KGB stuff from, you know, the, the 70s and 80s. But, but you know, when, when you look at the kind of arc of it and a lot of the different things they're doing, it is, like, pretty over the top, you know. But you can forgive um, that because you know but it's you, But you forgive it. You forgive it 100%, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I used to, when I was at the agency, like, I would get hung up on the realism of these kind of things and sure. it would be harder to watch shows. But since I've left and, and kind of, you know, mellowed in my old age, like it just, I, I find that, yeah, when, when a show is able to create that kind of foundation of at least some realism and then build off of that, it's, it's enjoyable. Right. So I've, I have a much, you know, a newfound appreciation for the Americans. Cause I, I do think, you know, the, the whole idea of like KGB, you know, director S like sleepers, like, it's real, you know, I mean, like it, it, it exists. And, and I, I think that show did a wonderful job of also, I, I think in particular kind of dealing with the psychological and emotional, uh, right. you know, realities of, of, of that work. Uh, it was just, it was really well done in that respect. So I'm a big fan. The way the show does it real well for the cold war, you again are doing in a modern era. And then also the way it shows the relationship between the neighbors, how you're kind of sympathetic yeah. for the quote bad yeah. guys as yeah. family men, you know, like their parents, they're raising children. Right. And then the FBI agent, you, you see his quirks and his right. you know, shortcomings also. So it's like, there's no perfect hero. You're watching the show and you're like, why, why do I not want the Russians to get caught? You know, like I, I don't <laughs> want them to, to get caught by Stan Beeman, you know, you're like, I like Stan, but I don't want him to win necessarily. Right. You know, it's like it's like kind of a, it's a twisted. It's a twisted well, you thing. do that too because I want to ask you. <laughs> I don't know if this is just me, but I I kind of like Ali Hassan, and yeah, I, you I should don't like know. him. I, I think yeah. I'm supposed to hate him because of his position and his reputation, but he ends up being a he loves his family. They're first and foremost. He's doing what he has to do to protect them. He sometimes has to be brutal. We see a lot of interrogation scenes where he is not doing friendly things. Right. But he has to because of the position he's in. So 
was Ali Hassan your attempt to create that sympathetic villain who in the end, actually, <laughs> I would say is a hero in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, I was, um, so Ali Hassan is, uh, to my mind, the most complicated character in this, in this Definitely. book. Um, Definitely. and he, you know, he was actually the character who was the lead character in the very earliest version of this manuscript. Uh, in 2014 so it was like all Syria focused and a version of him he was like kind of the, the main guy and I've had a lot of time to think about Ali Hassan and and who he is and where he comes from and the kind of person he is and he was an attempt to create someone who was just like a real person like was it hard to do that no, it it wasn't because I had spent so much time analyzing these people, right, who worked mm. inside the regime mm -hmm. um, and who were fully vested in it from a familial and professional standpoint, but who were also pretty like ambivalent about what it was mm. doing to yes. suppress the unrest and, and had these kind of deep moral qualms about what they had to do even as they continue to do these things you know yeah. and um and, and we're not like necessarily like they weren't making a ton of money you know and they weren't living mm -hmm. in huge mansions i mean like you know you in the book he's living in a pretty normal he's living in a good apartment but he's living in a normal apartment you know he he's kind of a servant of this state that is this twisted you know representation of this family and he's kind of stuck in a lot of ways you know and i think in the book i'm not i'm not trying to like let him off the hook from a moral standpoint because he does do a lot of bad things but i am trying to paint a picture of somebody who has far less agency than I think we do here, mm -hmm. you know, in the States when we think about like, well, just what are the different choices I can make about my life and what I do and how I, def you know, how I do things that I think are good versus bad. Like we have, yeah. we have a lot of freedom to do that here. And someone like him in that kind of system just, just has far less of it, you know? And yeah. so I, I was interested in exploring that tension of somebody who, has this pretty active inner life, you know, unlike his brother, he has this active inner life of like, these things are bad. I don't want to be doing these things. Yeah. And yet I'm kind of stuck. And, you know, that, that's, that's a real, that's a real person in Syria. I mean, those were real guys who were in these service, the security services and in the military. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to bring that to life because I thought that he, he represented a type that existed in the civil war. You know, he was that, that's a real person. Uh, and, and I wanted that story to be told. I'm really glad you told that story because again, a total outsider. Yes. I'm a history teacher. So I, I love keeping up to date with these things, but I don't really know the inside, you know, the palace intrigue and, and the players and personalities. So it's very easy for me to think, Oh, Syria and the Assad administration, they must all be restooms. And Basel, who are <laughs> yeah. scalping people and, and these tough savages, you know, just and the sarin gas, right? Like, how could everybody be on board with this? But then you drop us Ali, Ali Hassan and also Dahoud, Uncle Dahoud, because yeah. 
he's the one in the end when he okay one of for all the action that you write really well and all the trade craft and espionage that's on the edge of your seat i was maybe most on the edge of my seat in that final sequence and when he gives the note to mariam and allows her to make the choice and there's this yeah, un yeah. there's this unspoken understanding between them like to me those are the parts of your storytelling that are more enthralling more gripping more complex than you know them killing three of the 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 Syrian guys who were tracking them or being discovered on an SDR. I yeah. loved yeah. when you did that with the note. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I, I, I've kind of been, I've been struck by this in some of my own reading recently of just, you know, random novels and, and other thrillers or whatever you want to call them. Like, I do think that that kind of that psychological tension Man, that can be really powerful in a book. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm like 50 years late to this party, maybe 60 years late to this party. I just read The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Have you ever read that book? No, I haven't. But I read the other one by her. Was The Lottery? Was that her? But I, anyway, I, I didn't read that one. I, I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't read like horror. But okay. in my, in my most recent book, that I'm, that I'm working on now, like there's this kind of big creepy house in Russia that these guys, that my CA officers are going to. And I was like, well, okay, how do I, what are some examples of books where there's like a, you know, like a creepy weird house? Cause we've all been in like weird houses. They don't have to be haunted. Right. But like there are yeah. houses that you could go into where you're like, this is, I don't like being here. Right. Like, I don't like this yeah. place. It feels weird. It's like, how does somebody capture that? And in this book, it's pretty short, but there's, there's very little action. There's very, there's no gore really. It's just this sense of psychological tension and dread that overlays the entire thing that makes it like, it almost makes it like you want to turn the pages more for that than like you're saying for like, shoot them up action scenes, you know, like, because right. sometimes you kind of know what's going to happen in the action scene. But with that, with that psychological tension, it's actually more, I, I don't know, I, I find it to be more like, maybe just, you don't know what's going to happen, right? So there, there's right. more, there's more interest and intrigue in it, because, because it's uncertain. It's contingent and and, yeah, there's a lot of choices to make. Exactly. So that book is an example of one I've read recently where it's like, man, you know, it it just, it does such a good job of, of building this world around like, and in the sense of like, Oh man, like I just have this, this pit in my stomach as I'm reading it, even though almost nothing is happening because I'm so invested in what this character is going through. And so I think when I was writing those scenes with, with Miriam or with Sam at the end, you're kind of, I'm hoping that the reader is going to be drawn into this world of like, man, this person is just at the edge, even if they're not running around in a car chase or they're not, you know, shooting somebody like it is, they're just on the edge of their seat because their whole world is falling apart. You know, how do I capture that? Right. And two other characters, I don't know if that exact thing happens to, but who are strong forces and strong personalities and I get the sense that you're doing some sort of parallelism here. How'd you create 
and were you mindful about Butena and Proctor? I saw them as almost the same person on different sides with a lot of the same motivations. But one was a good guy. One was a bad guy. And (laughs) but they were all but they were almost doing the same things for the same reasons for their side that if you were on that side, you'd obviously cheer and want that person there. Like Proctor, right. she's kick ass, and these tattoos for all of the lost agents who, who she yeah. felt responsible for and served under, and then the Mossberg, you just what a what a cool character, <laughs> what a cool character. Yeah, she is. She's a lot of fun. And honestly, like she's probably my favorite character in the book. If I'm being totally honest, um, she'll be in the in the next one. She's actually the only character that carries over into the into the next really? book. Uh, okay. Yeah, because she. She is one of those characters who you sit down to write a scene with her and she just kind of takes over the page, you know, like she just kind of, she just kind of powers it forward. And, um, I actually wrote about a hundred pages of my second manuscript last spring and it wasn't going very well. I didn't like it. You know, it just, it wasn't working. And I threw it away and started bringing her back into the story mm. to kind of resurrect it. And so she ended up, you know, she ends up being unlike in Damascus station in this next book. Uh, she is one of the top kind of three point of view characters. So she's, you really are in her head as, as deranged as that may be for a lot, for a lot of the book. And I found that she was particularly interesting because I think she is this person that a lot of us maybe wish we could be sometimes, which is completely unchained from social norms, the procedures and policies of whatever institution we might work for. And you're just kind of like a wild animal. Like, I think she is kind of that. She's a wild card. She's a wild card. And, but she's also really good at her job and she's intuitive about people. And so I, I just found her character. She's extremely crass. I, I, I found she was kind of a spirit animal for me as I wrote, as I wrote the book, you know, she would just kind of things with her would flow. You're, it's interesting that you mentioned the parallels with, uh, with Dana, because I, I haven't thought about it that way, but as you said, I, I, I think there's some, some truth to that, that this, but Dana character is kind of like, you know, she's a little bit like Miriam's chief of station and, and, I think she has a less warm relationship with Miriam than Sam and Proctor do, True. certainly less collegial, but you know, she's, she's kind of this like sort of unchained representation of some aspect of upper crust Syrian society and um, someone that I think was, I, I honestly wrote the Butana character as, a little bit more, I mean, I think she's an interesting character, but she's a little bit more of a plot device to kind of mm. drive the Miriam story forward and to create okay. connection between the Hassan brothers through Rustam and, right. and what Miriam is doing, you know? So it's kind of like, okay, I need, I need this okay. person to, to exist, to do that. But, but she is right. She's, she's an interesting character in her own right. And, and one who is, you know, she's sort of, we're not in her head, but she seems like sort of fully and maybe obliviously invested in the, in the system around her, which, which is true, right? There's a lot, there's a lot of Syrians who were like that. 
in in the government uh, in the early years of the war. So she's very much on point to that in, in that respect. I guess maybe I compare them too much being these female mid-level managers in almost a man's club kind of uh Yeah, no, and, and that's that's true. That's and that's a good to, that's a good observation. Yeah. The way she's gung ho to take down Atia and and being a pedophile, like that's her life mission. It's not her job, but like th- that's what she has to do. She's got this like beef with him. But then at the same time, she wants to get Fatima back and like she wants to toe the party line and get Mariam yeah. to do her job the same way Proctor needs Sam to, you know, when she said, just collect the intel, run the agent, yeah. collect the intel. Like they're both just very straightforward in what they need to get the mission yeah. accomplished and how they manage people. But yeah. OK. So this might be a, a small thing. I've always wondered about the the diplomatic pouch. How many movies, TV shows has it come up? Can you tell me what it actually is and how this whole thing works? So, um, as you mentioned it, I mean, I mean, it's it's basically basically State Department mail that nobody can touch or open or scan. Orange pouch, yeah, they don't. It's not touched or scanned. So, you think about like how how does the CIA get a bunch of guns into Syria, right? Like to, to protect the embassy. Um, how do you get a, get a bunch of cash in? Like that kind of stuff comes in the pouch. And I don't, I, I'm actually not entirely sure what system of international rules or regulations sort of undergird this, but mm-hmm. it's generally accepted that there are sort of diplomatic correspondence that is going to go in and out of countries that you're not going to touch. It's going to go to the embassy. We do the same thing, like, you know, the Russians, the Chinese, whatever, will send stuff here via the pouch. And we don't, we don't check it. It's kind of generally, you know, accepted that whatever, whatever is in there is in there and, you know, all, all's fair. So it is, is it just it's a, a little bit of agreement a, or is that codified? Oh, yeah. I, that's what I, that's what I, I, I actually don't know. I, I okay. feel I feel embarrassed. I'm not I'm not I do not. I'm going to I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say it's not codified really? like formally, but that it's it's widely we accepted don't do it to and you. has been practiced for a long time. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. don't do it to us. We do it to you kind of thing. Because there's obviously nothing stopping theoretically anyone from searching right. the pouch. Like think about Moscow, like if we're flying something into Moscow via our diplomatic I forget what the name of the service is, but it's like basically the U.S. State Department, like, you know, postal service (laughs) that's flying something in, bringing it in by truck or or plane or whatever. You know, the Russians can stop it. The Chinese can stop it. Right. There's nothing we can do about it. But they know that it's reciprocal and that we'll shut it down, too. And everyone kind of has an interest in letting it go. So maybe more of a political statement to inspect it than it would be to actually try to catch something. Yeah, and it's, and it's you know it's it is a real it is a real thing. So interesting. Speaking about real things, yeah. and I don't know how this <laughs> one got past the review board. You might know where I'm going. The hot dog vending machine. I I heard it's real. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's true. very real. It's very real. Yeah, or at least it was when I was there. There there was a hot dog. I mean, and and by the way, it is funny in talking about this book uh, over the course of the past, you know seven months, the single detail that has come up the most has been <laughs> the hot dog vending machine because, uh, and, and honestly, from from all kinds of people, so, so you know, podcasts, 
it's it's been written up in in <laughs> like reviews and newspapers uh, honestly one of my one of my buddies who read the book when it was like in its first draft its infancy i'll never forget like the first question out of his mouth like when we were getting on the phone to talk about it because he'd finished it he's like hey i've got some thoughts you know let's let's talk first question out of his mouth he's like is there really a hot dog vending machine in the basement <laughs> and i think it's one of those wonderful details that is at once like it, it's so insane that it feels like it should be fake and yet it somehow like flips to the other side where it's like well it's so crazy that he must not be making that up you know like yeah. he, he couldn't possibly he couldn't it's like no 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 sane person could ever concoct a detail like that but it's real it's in it's in the basement uh i have never seen one anywhere else in my entire life right. it, at any place i've ever worked or been um but yeah you know it was the, the langley cafeterias would shut down before dinner and so if you were an unlucky person who was stuck there writing yeah. at the pdb late at night you know and it's like midnight and you hadn't planned to be there and you stole someone's granola bar out of their desk to eat and you know the hot dog machine would start to would would start to seem like a good idea you know, around yeah. around midnight and you just you just go down there and and get one and you know cross your fingers on your cholesterol levels later but it's it's a real thing that's too funny <laughs> yeah i had to ask you i had to ask you <laughs> hey so as we start winding down i, I want to just um ask you a few more general questions but you did mention the next book and very yeah. interesting to learn proctor's perspective will we'll carry on I'm almost in some way, as much as I loved all the characters and was kind of relieved at the end to hear it was sort of a cliffhanger that they got messages to one another so they know they're alive. Yeah. Kind of wondering, will they ever meet up? And then even Ali Hassan getting promoted, knowing he's high up in the administration. I feel like there's a second chapter there, but it's also nice to know that that tale is complete. Like whatever happens mm. next can exist in my imagination. And it's not going to demand of you to tell me what happens next. Like, it's kind of nice to know that. But so could you give any other hints on where we're headed? Like, is Syria done? Is that done and dusted? Are we moving to another hot zone or where are we going? So the next the next book is Russia. Okay. Um, and it's 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 modern day Russia. So it's okay. Putin's Russia. It's it is the Russia of 2023. 20, uh, oh, wow. you know, okay. which is when, which is when the book will come out, which has been a little hard to do because no one has any idea what's going to happen two weeks from it's now. So I'm trying to sort yeah. of deal with what is this going to look like, you know, Oof, um, tough. but I, um, it's, it's been really challenging, but also really fun to dive into a totally new topic. I mean, I didn't cover Russia at the agency. Um, it's not a place where I served. And so I have spent a lot of time researching and you know spending time with people who have who have spent a lot of time there to get it right so the, the next chapter is russia you know it's in the same universe as damascus station but it's not it's not a sequel obviously and it's it's really about what would it look like if the cia got really serious about making putin feel uncomfortable with his position and mm. so it's it's sort of getting into 
you know, that, that's sort of kind of the geopolitical setting, I guess. And then obviously there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of character work in this case, a lot of characters who are under commercial cover, they're knocks. Mm. Uh, so they're not, they're not typical case officers who are working out of an embassy. You know, they're, they're under commercial cover. One is a lawyer, one is a, um, actually a thoroughbred horse breeder and owner. And it's been a lot, you know, it, it has been a really hard book to write, but there, it's been fun to, to, to dig into this world and to create it. Um, and I'm really excited for how it's, how it's turning out. I think to your point on Syria, I don't think that story is done. Um, I, I'm hopeful that at some point in the next three to five years, okay. I have the opportunity to kind of come back and tell another chapter of that story. Okay, I had great. initially, I had initially thought of it as like three Syria books, one that's the early part of the war, one that's the middle and one that's the end. I'm now thinking it's probably just two. So there's probably like one at the beginning and one at the end of the war. I mean, the war is not over, but one that's sort of closer to like, you know, when right. the war started to turn into a stalemate and, and all the lines froze and all that. So I, I think there's another chapter there and I, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to tell it, but it's not, and I, and I have an outline of something okay, and kind of an, an idea, an image in my head of how it ends and where oh, characters okay. end up. But, you know, I, I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, haven't, haven't turned to that as my, my next project. Okay. I'm glad to hear though. The thoughts are there because it gives me something yeah, to think thoughts about. Thoughts are there. <laughs> I must say, I was actually a little shocked. All three of the big bigs survived. Survived. Are, yeah. Are free, I was too, you know? actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was refreshing. I, I wasn't sure if and it kept me on my the edge of my seat, right? I wasn't sure. Sam, Mariam, Alison, which ones are gonna be alive, which ones are gonna be in a position of power, which ones are gonna have freedom at the end of this book and that means there's more story left so that's good to know yeah yeah there's there's more story left and and you know i think since the early days of the book i've had a sense of like where this whole thing i i write in a process of i have an image in my head of like a, a scene or a place i want to get to in the book that's oftentimes pretty like pretty simple you know in the, in the syria book it was the interrogation room scene, right? Mm. Like, or at least the outlines of that. It's like, I knew I wanted to get there even before I had all the plot worked out. So like, how do I get there? And the Russia book, there's a similar kind of climactic scene where I just had an image in my head of this mm. house burning and woman riding off on a horse. And I was like, okay, well, how, you know, how do I, how do I get to that place and, and, mm. and make it work in the book. And so I, I have that image in my head for the next Syria book, but I have, I, <laughs> I have no idea how I'm, okay. how I'm actually going to get there. But that's, that's the fun of it is figuring out how you, you know, how do you draw the characters in the plot to kind of get to that right. payoff scene or moment where, where, you know, it all makes sense. And geopolitical wise, we are in another phase where it's not the yeah. red line of the Obama administration and the sarin gas, you know, and the American involvement in the air is a possibility on the table. It's a very different right. kind of almost slow burn. You might say, I would, I would imagine now, being so far removed from the actual destruction and, and the threat of international intervention. And now it's, it's the internal uh, 
fallout is still ongoing, but I feel like it's less center stage from the world. It's a different yeah. kind of conflict oh. than 2011, 13. Yeah. A hundred, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that, um, you know, I, I think the, the kind of books that I like to write really do attempt to, to deal realistically with like the geopolitical right. setting as, as much as I can. And so the, the final chapter of, the Syria you know, sort of story, I guess, if it ends up being written, we'll try to deal really realistically with what's going on in Syria in, you know, let's call it, you know, 2019, 2020, something like that, sort of the last days of the Syrian civil war, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, and, and meet our characters there and then see how they sort of respond to that, I think. The Russia one, though, is going to be a tall tale to keep up with geopolitics. <laughs> are, are you prepared to completely... Or do you would you plan to change things if there's a major event, whether it be something involving the Ukraine crisis or something involving the Putin administration? If there's a major shift in the world, would you feel compelled to do that in your book and deal with it? Or are you going to tell the story at what point your story's at, regardless of world events? Like I'm seeing reports about Putin's health. Like who knows? Yeah, 2023 yeah. might be very different than 2022. You know, it's it's funny because the the book. Um, the book essentially deals with the idea of a CIA sort of instigated plot to to make Putin feel like a coup is underway without a coup actually being underway, mm. uh, and and to you know just sort of capitalize on him feeling against the ropes and you know they're, they're, the Russians are they're killing each other and they'd have no dangerous reason to game. so dangerous game but. You know, in, in my book, Putin is kind of the Putin of today where he's, you know, sort of a not a well man, let's say, and and an old man. And I think I am cognizant that something could change, you know, over the next year. And I think if it does, what I will probably do is just write the book as, you know, sort of the last days of the Putin mm. regime or something like that. And then been like I do in Damascus Station, a bit of a alternative take on a historical mm. period. Yeah. Um, you know, so I because I don't I, I can't keep up with the day to day stuff in a novel. No, you know, no, it just no. it just doesn't work that way. So it's gotta be your universe I, at some point. Yeah. yeah, it's gotta be my universe. And so I think it's gonna, you know, regardless I look I've already I've already had to do a decent amount of stuff to the book because sure. of Ukraine sure. to capture that. But if if Putin ends up going down or Russia changes considerably, you know, that'll get taken into account to some degree. But I think it's still going to be said in the last days of the Vladimir Putin, you know, sort of administration. And I'll just kind of let let that be what be what it is. And, and my my characters exist in that world, you know, so for good or for real. Since you read Mitch Rapp, do you recall Red War? I think it was three, four books ago. That one deals with similar things of a Russian pres president and oligarchs who are fomenting some dissent. I don't know if I've read that one. What, oh, it's is right it, before is it good? Lethal Agent. Okay. Uh, it was probably 2017, 18. Okay. It tests NATO's resolve to activate Article 5. It has Krupin is the president who has brain cancer. 
And so what oh, happens when Crouppen has brain cancer and the oligarchs around him are starting to chit chat? Maybe revisit Red War by Kyle Mills because a lot of a lot okay. of that stuff and a lot of Ukraine parallels. Obviously, he's writing it a number of years ago, but um, yeah, you might enjoy that one. I'll, I'll check that out because yeah, my my book is dealing with you know Putin is not um, explicitly ill in my book, nor is anyone trying to explicitly push him out, but he's kind of like in the backdrop, and there's a lot of angst between the, the the characters that are more in the foreground of like there's a lot of jockeying going on and exactly. and guys guys who are dealing with old vendettas against each other and and pushing each other around and robbing each other and things like that because kind of the main guy is like you know not weighing in or his weighted on the side of one of the more powerful ones so i've got i've got similar dynamics going on in my book but red war okay i'll need to i'll need to read that one I don't think I've, I, I definitely have not read that one. All right. I think you'll enjoy it. We got, we got another Mitch rap book. We we've pushed on this uh, podcast. So <laughs> David, thanks for joining us. This was a blast. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Everyone who's still listening has also read it. So hope you guys are sufficiently teased for 2023 and <laughs> book number two. Thanks for talking about it. Thanks for coming on and really, really glad you wrote this book. It was a fantastic story. And I think one that that really pushes the genre, thriller genre, espionage, spy novel genre, pushes it to another level in a new direction. So thanks for writing it and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. A ton of fun. Really appreciate being here. <laughs> <laughs>